Coming up, more secret stories of Disneyland. That's next. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 676, for the week of May 14th, 2017. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan that perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Michael Bowling. Hey there, hi there, ho there. And our special guest, Jim Corcus. Well, thanks uh, to both of you. Well, welcome back to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition. We are continuing our tour of Disneyland with Disney author and historian Jim Corcus. If you recall from last time on our tour, if you get out your map of Disneyland, you'll know that we took a break over in New Orleans Square and relaxed listening to some jazz music by the Royal Street Bachelors. And now we're going to start exploring and hearing stories from Jim on New Orleans Square. Jim, welcome back. Are you ready to start yes, us off? Yes, thank you for for having me back. That, that was so much uh, uh, fun the last time. I hope the listeners had... Uh, uh, fun as well. Uh, again, yes, I've just written a, a new book, Secret Stories of uh, uh, Disneyland, uh, Trivia Notes, Quotes, and uh, Anecdotes, and it's on uh, Amazon.com or ThemeParkPress.com. Uh, uh, and I've a- always been fascinated with maybe some of those different stories about uh, uh, Disneyland. And and fortunately, uh, growing up in the Los Angeles area, I got a chance to uh, interview and get to know a, a lot of the Imagineers who uh, worked on Disneyland. So I've included some of their uh, uh, stories in the book. And uh, even for some of the old familiar stories, I try to do a little uh, different uh, perspective. And and my gosh, we're, we're heading over to uh, the first new land uh to uh, uh come to Disneyland which was New Orleans Square mm-hmm. and uh, the dedication of that land was uh uh with the mayor of New Orleans uh, uh was unfortunately uh the last uh public media uh appearance uh of uh of Walt Walt uh, uh did in 1966 um go and and uh, continue uh, to visit the park, but this was the last uh, uh, his last public media appearance was the dedication of uh, uh, New Orleans uh, Square. So he got to live long enough uh, uh, to see that, but not to see the opening of Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. which, which yeah. unfortunately happened a few months after his passing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the first land in Disneyland to be based on a real historic location. So it's very mm-hmm. different for the Imagineers. Wait, wait a minute. You mean Fantasyland isn't real? <laughs> well, we're not there yet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. but now, now, there is a character guests have seen countless times around New Orleans Square, but I bet they don't even know his, his name. So, Jim, what is the secret story of Beacon Joe? Oh, <laughs> my God. Gosh, you 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 are a, a sneaky little uh, uh, 
podcast host there um, uh, for that. Yes, Beacon Joe. Uh, and Beacon Joe, I discovered, uh, since I'm based out in Orlando, Florida, I discovered him at Walt Disney World and then got to uh, uh, track him uh, uh, back. Uh, Beacon Joe um, uh, was designed by Imagineer uh, Mark Davis. And uh, again, audio-animatronics is a very uh, expensive proposition. And Blaine Gibson, even though he uh, probably could have created a, uh, a, a brand-new face for every audio-animatronic, um, that's not necessarily cost-effective. So sometimes uh, you reuse uh, uh, an audio-animatronic. So, for instance, uh, some of the presidents in the Hall of Presidents uh, end up in uh, Spaceship Earth doing uh, uh, other things. Uh, Thomas Jefferson actually is the uh, uh, cowboy in the great movie ride who's up on the balcony with the rifle firing away. <laughs> And, and and again, you know, people uh, don't really look at it that closely. Well, Beacon Joe is one of the most uh, uh, premier examples of you know reusing a um, uh, a figure, an audio animatronic uh, figure, and he got the name Beacon Joe. He, they don't name every audio animatronic figure, but he got the name Beacon Joe from. Um, uh, Walt Disney World, because uh, Mark Davis realized that you know there uh, there wasn't going to be a Pirates of of the uh, Caribbean out in uh, in Florida, so he could grab one of the Pirates of the Caribbean characters and uh, stick him on the rivers of America. So in the rivers of America at Walt Disney World, as you go up and make the turn, uh, there's a, a guy and his dog just outside of a, a, a shack there, and uh, they're watching uh, uh, the river there. Uh, you know, he's a, a beacon to let them, the steamship know, yep, it's clear sailing for the rest of it there. But that's not where he, he started. Uh, uh, he actually um, <laughs> uh, he, he actually was in Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland. That, uh, that character on the Blue Bayou there that, that you can see across from the restaurant Who's, who's over there at on the shack, and you hear the banjo playing and all of that, that's Beacon Joe. Now, uh, like many actors who don't have a speaking line, you know, you want to get as much screen time as possible. So uh, he's later in the uh, uh, Pirates uh, ride in the, uh, in the jail cell. Uh, we're trying to coax the dog to uh, give the key to the door. He's the standing pirate there. And he also shows up clean-shaven and wearing a crown uh, at the ballroom banquet table in the uh, Haunted Mansion. And uh, I, I have suspicions that he's, he's popped up uh, a, a couple of other places uh, as well. But um, uh, the first time... This was pointed out to me. You just can't unsee it. You take a look and you go, "Well, I can, I can tell that facial, you know, structure and and uh, all of that." And uh, uh, that woman uh, in the uh, uh, banquet uh, scene who's who's mm -hmm. uh, uh, sitting in in the chair there, she, 
She's the uh, grandma from Carousel of Progress. Yes. Who was in a rocking chair. Yeah, she's probably one so, of the most famous ones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, it, and and that's that's the the fun thing, and 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 sometimes uh, 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 people tell me, well, Jim. You know, that's interesting, but I wish you wouldn't tell me that because it, it destroys the magic. You know, I, 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 be, I become so uh, uh, intense at looking at that that I, I don't get immersed in the entire experience. My philosophy is that it's fun to know these things and, and that it enhances the experience and it also enhances the understanding of uh, how the Imagineers worked and, 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 and did this. So... Um, Disneyland had Beak and Joe first, but mm-hmm. uh, I discovered him first out at uh, Walt Disney World. Now, speaking of when you talk about you know these stories, how they enhance the experience, there have been many stories associated with the haunted mansion. Mm. But you, but again, in your book, Secret Stories of Disneyland, you reveal what some of the real backstories were or are of the haunted mansion. And and again, you know. Uh, that was tough because the haunted mansion um, was really uh, the the first attraction that was built without Walt's direct input. You know, on Pirates of the Caribbean, he was able to see the uh, model, which was, uh, believe it or not, forty feet long. That's how big the model was. And then, and then Imagineering just destroys these models. That's uh, I, because again, no storage space. Um, and and he he saw the mock-up of the uh, auctioneer scene, and he saw all the costumes, all that. Once he passed away, he wasn't there to work on the on the haunted mansion because he had several different teams working on it, and that was not unusual for for Walt. He would he would like to have different teams working and bring him things because he wasn't it wasn't a competition where he would choose. Uh, one concept over another is he might find certain things in one concept that he liked and then certain things in another concept that he liked and then certain things in another concept that springboarded different ideas for him and and he put those those in but um, as far back as 1957 uh, he had uh, Imagineer uh, Ken Anderson uh, work on a haunted house, and originally it was going to be a, a walk-through attraction, and then after uh, his experience at the 64-65 New York World's Fair, uh, realized that, uh, you know, oh my gosh, there's a better way of moving people through, you know, we, we, can, we, can, we can do this. Um, and so we've got higher capacity. So Ken came up with, with a concept and and again, it fluctuated back and forth uh, uh, for a while, but it was such a strong concept that elements of it still exist in the haunted mansion today. And so, uh, as Ken told me, and as I, I recount in in the in the book here, uh, basically there was a, a pirate captain, sort of like a, a Captain Henry Morgan. And uh, most pirates didn't get hung or shot or stabbed. Many of them just retired into, uh, uh, you know, uh, life and used their ill-gotten gains to establish themselves in the, in the community. And so this is what this pirate did. He used that money to 
become a respected, prosperous uh, businessman. Obviously, he had changed his uh, name and all of this. And, of course, as was the custom in those days, he was going uh, to pick um, a, a younger woman, an 18-year-old girl, for his bride because she would be able to produce a, a lot of children. All right? And most 18-year-olds, even in those days, uh, were, let's say, a little silly, <laughs> not much experience in the world. And uh, the only restriction he gave her was, you know, stay out of the attic of the mansion. You know, just like the beast telling Belle, you know, stay out of the West Wing. Um, so uh, stay out of, but of course, if you tell an 18-year-old girl, don't do something, that's, of course, the very first thing she's going to do. And she goes up there, and she finds an old sea trunk. And she's in her wedding dress, because this is her wedding day. But, she, you know, her, her curiosity just, you know, couldn't be uh, uh, put off any longer. And as she rummages through this locked trunk, uh, she finds uh, documents and souvenirs and all of uh, the pirate's past life, because I guess he was a little sentimental about that. And so he comes up there, and uh, he is just enraged because, you know, she is silly. She is foolish. You know, she won't be able to keep a, a, a secret, and, uh, you know, uh, all will be lost, you know. He may be brought to trial. He may be hung. And so they get into this fight, and in the fight, he throws her out the window to her death. Now, when you are in that attic and you go out that window, it probably doesn't occur to you, you know, and then you notice how the ride vehicle tips back. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is now, just like a medium, is you are channeling the ghost of this poor woman. So look over to your right-hand side. Look at the shingles on the roof. They are different then the shingles on the outside of the, the house at um, Disneyland and at Walt Disney World. Because now you are this dead girl being thrown to her death, and at the bottom, that uh, uh, scared gravekeeper, mm -hmm. he's not looking in there where all those ghosts... You can see from where you are, there are ghosts in there that are having a lively time. He's not looking at them, he's looking at you. Because he's scared because you're the newest ghost going in there. Hmm. Yes. And that's, that's, that's all from Kent. And then, of course, what happens is the girl comes back and haunts this pirate so that he is, you know, uh, you know, he, he can't sleep. He, he's scared, all of this. So what does he do? He hangs himself. But their passions are so strong that they're bound to the house. And so they are kept in the house, and the other ghosts are there, especially in the banquet scene, for a wedding that's just never going to happen. And if you look up at the uh, uh, weather vane, you'll see it's a ship. Mm -hmm. You know? So there are all these little elements. But again... Everything at Disney is a collaboration, you know? So even though Ken had this all worked out 
and people were designing things based uh, on this. You know, uh, Claude Coates, uh, Yale Gracie thing, were doing this. You know, it's a collaborative effort. And then, of course, with Walt gone, there's nobody in charge. And so, you know, these rival factors, you know, they're not just all one happy magic kingdom. They're all a bunch of different uh, fiefdoms that all report to the same king and they try to undercut each other and all that. So the Haunted Mansion is one of the first of um, the schizophrenic Disney attractions. And by schizophrenic, I mean there's actually two different things going on. And so in the beginning of the attraction, you have uh, all of this horror and weird stuff, you know, and, and you're getting this from um, uh, Roly Crump's plans for Museum of the Weird and Claude Coates, you know, who, who's doing, uh, you know, the, uh, the wallpaper with the eyes and all this. And then suddenly you break in, you know, and uh, you've got these ghosts just going happy, happy, happy in, in the graveyard. And, of course, the last ghost you see is the woman opera singer because it's not over until the fat lady sings. <laughs> and so that's why you know it's now over. <laughs> and, oh, and so funny. even if you don't know that uh, consciously, subconsciously, it just seems right. <laughs> and um, uh, another schizophrenic attraction is uh, Splash Mountain. You know, the first half of that water ride uh, my parents would have loved. Uh, I have a young niece and nephew. They would have loved it. But then as soon as you get to that water flume drop, they'd be having heart attacks. Mm -hmm. on, on the other hand, I, I have a grown niece and uh, nephew, Keith and, uh, and Amber, and they get diabetic on the first half of the ride. It's just so sweet with these audio animatronic characters. But they love the drop. If they could just do the drop, they'd be doing it over and over and over every time they went to Disneyland. <laughs> um, so, yes. But, but again, you know, in 2006, uh, Disney changed the whole story. So, so now the bride up there is the Black Widow bride who has uh, killed multiple uh, uh, husbands. And her name is Constant uh, Hatchaway because she used her little hatchet to hatch away at, at, at these, uh, uh, people. And, um, so it's a whole nother story now. And speaking of another story, if you really wanted a nice simplified explanation of how Pepper's ghost works by mm -hmm. the book, I've, I've got a two page explanation of that. And I was, uh, a professional magician. And I did used to use the Pepper's Ghost illusion in, in one of my performances. I'd, I'd perform mm. at the Variety Arts uh, Center in Los Angeles. I performed magic at uh, uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain. Uh, I think all of that was to impress women. They were completely unimpressed. So I became a <laughs> Disney historian. Uh, <laughs> and, now, and now you're impressed. <laughs> <laughs> but, now, you but, know. but 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 yes, you know, Pepper's Ghost and Pepper's Ghost appears in um, other attractions mm -hmm. uh, at uh, at Disney. Uh, it, the the Blue Fairy in the Pinocchio, and there is a Pinocchio ride at Disneyland. I know that uh, uh, the Blue Fairy there. That that's uh, Pepper's Ghost, and and the original uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty uh, walkthrough um, 
in the castle. They had uh, flora, fauna, and merryweather, and and those were done with with Pepper's ghost. Interesting. Now mm-hmm. you since you brought up um, Splash Mountain, uh, let's let's sort of saunter over there to um, an area of the park that we're we're, we're doing an awful lot of sauntering. If, if 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 we were really Disney fans, we'd be running. <laughs> and 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 pushing little kids and old ladies out of the way because know. you know it, it, it's time for our fast pass reservation and all that. But okay, <laughs> just, just, just for just for the listeners, we'll saunter this time <laughs> over to over to Splash Mountain. So uh, so we've sauntered over here. What okay. what is it you'd like to know, Michael? Now I was surprised. Now the snoring of Brer Bear. Yes, as its ties all the way back to Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, and again, this year we're celebrating um, the 80th anniversary of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was released December 1937. Mm-hmm. And uh, an idea for a, a, a future podcast you might want to do is Snow White in the Parks. Mm-hmm. So not just the grotto and the wishing well and the uh, uh, scary uh, uh, adventures there, but the Seven Dwarfs mine train out here, the meet and greet areas, things like that. The the very first, um, I, I got to interview the very first friend of Snow White who was there oh. uh, July 17th, 1955. That's in my other book, uh, The Unofficial uh, uh, Disneyland 1955 Companion. I have the entire... She passed away at the age of uh, 91, and she had a whole little nice collection of Snow White stuff, including music boxes and all that. But anyway, getting back to the snore, um, when Walt was working on Snow White and uh, the Seven Dwarfs, this is the very first time anybody's ever done, you know, a Technicolor animated feature, you know? And so you're stumbling and you're, you're finding your way. Well, one of the scenes they worked on was uh, building a bed for Snow White, and and there are uh, there's a segment there where Sleepy, who obviously should be directing the building of the the bed, is is snoring away. You know, uh, and again, it's a realistic snore, but it's also a comic snore. You know, because in animation you have to have that sense of exaggerated reality. It's not life; it's the illusion of life. Well, that sequence got cut. And so uh, the sound of the snore, which was provided by um, Pinto Colvig, who uh, also uh, who did the voice of uh, Sleepy, but also did the voice of uh, 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 Grumpy, and um, uh, was also the voice of uh, Goofy, by the way. But anyway, had done the snore. They didn't use it. But again, at Disney, you never throw away anything. You never throw away ideas. You never throw away artwork because maybe the artwork could be readapted, you know, and and uh, uh, traced over uh, uh, things like that, you know. Uh, uh, sometime Google uh, uh, Disney's uh, 1973 uh, animated Robin Hood, and you'll see that they read. Really Yes, you know, animation for dances and from Jungle Book and from all of these other things. So anyway, this got put away in a cabinet, you know, in in the sound library. When they came to build Mine Train through Nature's Wonderland at Disneyland, um, they had a little town, and the little town was called Rainbow Ridge. 
Uh, in fact, uh, today people still call that town Rainbow Ridge, even though there's a sign up there that says the town is Big Thunder. Uh, Rainbow Ridge, and they had a hotel. And on the second floor, while the trains were in the station, you know, and you're loading people on or you're loading people off, you want something, you know, little details to to keep them amused and all of that. So uh, there's a snore coming out from the uh, uh, upper floor of um, uh, of the hotel there, the El Dorado Hotel. And, you know, cute, funny little gag, you know. One of the miners or one of the cowboys or whatever, you know, is just sleeping it off off there. Well, uh, what happened is uh, they built um, Bear Country. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a whole nother story there that, maybe we'll get into in the, in the second volume or, of, or whatever is, is why is bear country there? You know, was it a town built by people and they abandoned the, the thing and then bears came in, or is this a town where the bears built it all, you know, uh, for, for that, uh, to, there's, there's a whole bunch of things with that, but that's a story for another time. But anyway, going into bear country, there's uh, which is, sort of in that dead-ended uh, uh, little area there around the curve of the rivers of uh, uh, America was a mountain, and there was a cave. And so they had the snore come out from the cave, and it was supposed to be Rufus. Uh, Rufus was supposed to be part of the Country Bear Jamboree, but the the gag is is that he's oversleeping, so he's going to miss you know his time on stage. Then they build Splash Mountain. So uh, they moved the cave up, you know, right before um, uh, the drop into the mountain. Uh, They moved the cave up there, and there's Rufus's cave. But over the years, they get rid of Country Bear Jamboree. It's now (laughs) Critter Country. And you've got a bunch of people, and they have no clue who Rufus is. So... (laughs) <laughs> they redo the cave, so now it's Brer Bear's cave, and it's Brer Bear's snore uh, that, that that's coming out there. And so, you know, you, you just never know. Things get reused at at uh, Disneyland all the time. You know, the the uh, the Triton sculpture that was in uh, Triton's garden over there in the front of Tomorrowland, mm-hmm. that's that's over at uh, Disney California Adventure now, right? Over on top yes. of the Little Mermaid ride. Right. Yeah, yep. things things get recycled there. So so the Actually, next time you I ride... Had, I had heard that that's fake. Oh, really? That, that, that it, what's fake? The Triton above there. I heard that it, the real one was, it was too heavy so that they, they created a, a lookalike to put up there on top of the building. It, they could have. They could have used a mold for that. But it was the original mold. It was the original mold for that Triton. Hmm. And again, let's see what the listeners say. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 always remember when the listener when you when you guys go in, I know an awful lot, but I know enough to know how much I really don't know. <laughs> There's lots of things I don't know. And then again, as I said, uh, oftentimes I'm told things by Imagineers mm-hmm. who really believe it's true. And then I later find out it's completely wrong. 
Isn't that funny? Now, now let's think happy thoughts and make our way to the realm most closely associated with Walt Disney. And that's Fantasyland. And okay. Let's take the a, happiest let's, kingdom of them all. It is. And and there are a number of attractions in Fantasyland unique to Disneyland. So let's take a ride on some of those attractions. Jim, okay. in your in your book, Secret Stories of Disneyland, again, you have you shared another conversation, this time with Imagineer Ken Anderson, about his work on one of my favorite attractions there, um, Storybook Land. Can you mm-hmm. share that with our listeners? Oh, yeah. Uh, when um, uh, Walt Disney was always very fond of uh, miniatures, and he was uh, uh, always intending to have some attraction in Disneyland that would have miniatures. So if you look at the original proposals for uh, Disneyland, there was going to be a Lilliputian land. And uh, that would also have had uh, his Carrollwood Pacific um, uh, engine in there uh, going around. And there would be little houses and little people and uh, all of that. Walt also intended around the shore of Tom Sawyer's Island like, um, like, um, like, um, uh, the pyramid and the Sphinx and the Eiffel Tower and, uh, things like that. So you could only see them from, uh, the Mark Twain, which would encourage you to go on the Mark Twain. Um, and then one of the, his plans was, uh, canal boats. And, uh, he had seen these over in Europe. And so canal boats, and they were going to go uh, through miniature icons of, of, of little European uh, uh, towns. But again, as Disneyland was, was coming to be built, they were running out of time, they are running out of money, and so there is nothing but bare landscape, you know. So it's uh, uh, the canal boats of mud. And uh, uh, ride operators who are on there, uh, you know, we're trying to elaborate and say, well, coming soon on the banks will be, you know, uh, this little miniature version of, of Paris. And, and right now it's so miniature you can't see it at all. But uh, <laughs> this, this will be here. But, uh, you know, uh, again, that was the first um, Disneyland ride to get the lowest test satisfaction rating ever. Um, because they went out on these boats, there was nothing to see. It, it was like out here at Walt Disney World when they had uh, boats at uh, Disney Animal Kingdom. And there were supposed to be all sorts of things on the shore you were supposed to see. There was nothing. You know? So it's like, we wait in line 45 minutes for a 15-minute boat ride and you don't see anything? What is this? So Walt went to Ken Anderson and said, well, we want something here and, you know, this is my concept and and all of that. And so... Ken sort of plussed it and said, okay, we'll do those European landscapes, but what we'll do is we see that people coming to Disneyland just love the Disney characters. That's what makes Disneyland different. We'll do European, but we'll theme them directly to, uh, uh, you know, the Disney uh, uh, characters and the Disney films. And, and in fact, um, that's one of the things where I always used to trip up people. And, and I said, uh, um, 
how many castles does uh, uh, Disneyland have? And most people would just say one, you know, Sleeping Beauty Castle. No, there's Cinderella Castle in, in Storybook Land there uh, for that uh, to happen. And so uh, Ken started working with these things, and so they were using wood, they were using fiberglass, uh, you know, uh, and in fact, they even used, uh, uh, bricks, you know, uh, small bricks and things like this and metal and concrete and all this to, to, uh, do this and, and attention to, to detail. So even the doorknobs, you know, uh, were these handcrafted lead doorknobs and, and the, um, stained glass windows, that's real stained glass. And, and one of the contractors, uh, came to Walt and he says, why are you doing this? Nobody's going to see this. And Walt said, I'll see it. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I'm paying you do what I'm paying you to do. Mm-hmm. And Bill Evans had to go out and find, you know, uh, miniature, uh, trees because, uh, Walt didn't want fake trees. You know, he didn't want anything artificial in there. So they, they had to find things that were, were miniaturized. And Ken actually found a place up in, uh, uh, San Francisco, where uh, somehow the redwood forest the uh, had starved to death, so the the growth had had uh, uh, stunted. So so they were still alive, but they just weren't going to grow. And you know, brought those down and uh, planted those around uh, uh, Snow White's there, and uh, you know, uh, and then there was an <laughs> aging process too. Imagine your Harriet. Uh, Burns told me th- this story. There was an Imagineer, uh, uh, Fred Yoger, who, who did all of the mm-hmm. the rock work, basically, that you see in almost any Disney uh, uh, theme park. Just an absolute uh, genius at that. Did all the rock work on, on Big Thunder Railway, among other things. Uh, and so he was working on this uh, church that had a, a copper roof. But again, it looks brand new. So Harriet went off uh, to lunch, and when she came back from lunch, she came back early, and uh, Fred was um, uh, over the church, peeing on the roof, <laughs> so, so that so that the acidity would age the roof. So nowadays there are chemicals you can use to do that, but uh, back there in 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 '56, that's how the roof got aged there for. Uh, for that to happen. And, and of course, over the years, you know, uh, things changed on Storybook Land, too. I remember as a kid going on there, and as you come to the end of the ride, they, they point to a little uh, 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 sort of cave area, and they go, and that is Never Never Land, because we never, never go there. And uh, now I think uh, it's the Little Mermaid uh, section. Right. Mm-hmm. Is, is that over there, you know, and, uh, and Toad, Toad was very prominent there. And then he got replaced by Aladdin, um, because nobody knew who Mr. Toad was anymore. That's, that's one of the reasons he got ripped out of, uh, uh, Walt Disney world. He does appear in the haunted mansion, uh, uh, pet cemetery. They, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kevin Kidney, a very, very talented, uh, uh, artist and, and a, a true lover of, of Disneyland and, and Disney history, uh, did big figs, big figures of, uh, 
Disney characters. He did one of Mr. Toad. That's the one that's the headstone up in uh, mm-hmm. in the pet cemetery uh, out here. I don't know. Uh, there's no reason for it to be out in Disneyland because Disneyland right. still got the ride. And know? they find and they did put Toad Hall back in Storybook Land. It's just in another location mm-hmm. on the attraction now. But speaking of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, now of course that's based on you know a short film, but mm-hmm. it had the wind and, in the willows. Yeah, the interesting thing is, it has almost nothing to do with the film that it's based on. <laughs> no, it, no. It, it, in, in fact, in the, the the end of the film, uh, Toad is happy. You know, he he's got yeah. Toad Hall back, and uh, he's given up his motor mania. He's off on airplanes now. You know, zipping through. At at Disneyland, you go to hell. That's yeah, it. so yeah, very un Disney like ending. And but the attraction has an interesting story that you write about. Yeah, well, and 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 again, Walt wanted that ending because Walt uh, um, Walt was a very moral guy, and and he basically believed that there are consequences for things you do. So if you're going through and you're driving recklessly and and all of that, there are consequences you need to pay, you know. And and by golly, I I don't know how many times I got faked out by that train in the tunnel coming towards me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, look at the light up there. Oh, when is this going to veer away? And um, so you go to hell. And, um, in fact, when the uh, attraction closed out here in Orlando, the one thing uh, Disney archivist uh, Dave Smith took from the attraction, the one thing was one of those little devils. So that's over <laughs> at the uh, uh, Disney uh, archives uh, there. And... Um, so originally, this uh, this was going to be a uh, a roller coaster, and uh, their concept art for that. And Walt, uh, because again, you know, you're you're driving recklessly. Of course, you know there'll be a roller coaster, and you lose these curves and up and down and all that. And Walt didn't want that because in 1955, Walt wanted the entire family to be able to enjoy an attraction together. He said at an amusement park, you're all separated. You know, the little kids go on these little kiddie rides that only a little kid can sit on, you know, a little helicopter ride or a boat ride or a car or something like that. And the teenagers go on the thrill rides and the parents just sort of sit on the bench, you know, waiting for them to come and ask for more money. So for Disneyland, one of the things that would make it different is that everybody could go on everything, you know. Uh, the only thing that had a height limit was um, the Autopia. And that was because uh, simply you had to be able to reach the gas pedal, you know. Uh, and then what happened uh, in 56 is Walt introduces the junior Autopia over in Fantasyland. So the seats are higher so you can see out the windshield. And the gas pedal is extended by a block of wood on it uh, so that you know, younger kids could do that. That was still not good enough. So the following year, 57, uh, Walt introduces the midget autopia so that little kids, you know, and uh, who who couldn't steer and couldn't use the gas pedal now had a little car ride that, that they could do. You know, it was very much like a dark ride, but out in the outdoors there for that to happen. So anyway, Toad was going to be a uh, roller coaster, but wasn't. And, um, then became the ride that we all uh, uh, know and love, 
And uh, this was some of the first work done by uh, uh, Arrow Development, who you know later did the Matterhorn and uh, did some other things uh, uh, for Disneyland, like the teacups and Dumbo and all this. But this was the mm-hmm. very first Disneyland attraction uh, that they worked on. And like most of the early dark rides at Disneyland, uh, these were not three-dimensional figures in the attraction. These were plywood cutouts, mm-hmm. you know, but, but people just uh, uh, accepted that. And uh, one of the things that I include in the book, which I don't think normally people mention, is once you exit Winky's Pub, uh, if you look in one of the upstairs windows um, uh, of the buildings there, there's a silhouette of Sherlock Holmes. And for years, people are going, what does that mean? That's not in the wind in the willows, you know? And uh, yes, Sherlock Holmes is British, but what does that have to do with that? Well, Kenneth Graham, who wrote uh, Wind in the Willows, he was a very good friend of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote, of course, the Sherlock Holmes stories. And Ratty, uh, in the Wind in the Willows... um, was supposed to be based on the character of Holmes and especially um, Basil Rathbone's uh, interpretation. Basil Rathbone, by the way, played Sherlock Holmes, of course, in, I think, some of the greatest Sherlock Holmes films ever made. But uh, he also narrated the 1949 um, animated featurette. And mm-hmm. so you've got Sherlock Holmes up there as an homage to a couple of things. You know, Graham's, uh, Graham's friend, uh, Ratty's inspiration uh, uh, from Holmes, uh, Basil Rathbone, who played Holmes. And it's just there, and by golly. That's a it, nice it's little just text. just so seamless, people miss it. Yeah, yeah. You know, why, why is that? And, and of course, the, the great story, of course, too, is when uh, somebody, uh, and this is uh, uh, before... 1964, in the early days of the park, somebody came up and said, Mr. Disney, and, and, and Walt said, there's only one Mr. in Disneyland. That's Mr. Toad. <laughs> yeah, I always and then later, that story. At, then later, after Lincoln was in there, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, uh, Walt um, uh, changed that, so when people would say that, he said, there's only two Misters in Disneyland, Mr. Toad <laughs> and Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> Now, during a tour of Walt Disney's Imagineering, my wife and I were fortunate enough to see the original, authentic statues from Snow White's Grotto. And then we were told the real story of the statues, which is very different from the accepted story, that the statues were unexpected gifts from a mysterious benefactor that just showed up at the studio one day. Now, and in your book, you share that real story and, and I also share the, the fake one that Imagineer mm-hmm. John Hench told me. Yes, yes, because he liked to perpetuate that story. So do you, would you like to share those with our listeners? Sure. Uh, Snow White's Grotto is uh, a, a wonderful little extra at, at Disneyland. It, it, it's also a wonderful little transition um, into Fantasyland and, and, and uh, out of uh, Fantasyland. And according to legend... For many decades, and and this this is why you can't trust anybody. Don't don't trust me. <laughs> you, can't you can't trust, trust John anybody. <laughs> um, 
is, is the story was that, um, you know, unexpectedly, um, you know, in, in 1960, uh, the Disney Studios received uh, a mysterious gift of um, uh, marble uh, carved statues of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and that it had come from Italy. But uh, there was no return address. Nobody knew. Walt loved the detail and wanted them, you know, included in the park. And um, apparently the sculptor had used this as model. Um, there's a lot of Disney merchandise uh, overseas that, you know, we never get a chance to see. Apparently there was a set of soaps uh, of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, of course, since the soaps were all pretty much the same size, Snow White was the same size as the dwarves. And uh, so John Hench uh, solved this problem by putting Snow White right at the top and then the dwarves closer to people. So through forced perspective, Snow White looks farther away, so it's natural that she would be smaller. And to add to that illusion, uh, uh, John had a, uh, a, a little deer and some other animal uh, bird, I think, uh, sculpted to, to put next to her. So again, it creates the illusion that she's full size, but she's just further away. And uh, by golly, you know, uh, we all believe this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it, and then suddenly we have Adventures by Disney and Adventures by Disney suddenly tells people there is no Santa Claus. There is Easter Bunny. Uh, apparently, after uh, Hench's uh, death, they found that uh, there was uh, paperwork uh, that that Disney had actually uh, uh, commissioned these. Um, uh, each of the dwarves is uh, 39 inches tall, and Snow White's 39 inches tall. And uh, they discovered that if they had to re-sculpt Snow White to the right proportions, that'd be 2000 bucks, but it would only cost about 600 bucks to carve a couple of smaller animals, uh, to put next to her. Now, um, when Tokyo Disneyland opened, uh, they wanted an exact duplicate of Snow White's grotto. You know, they very much Tokyo Disneyland very much wanted, you know, to really capture Walt's Disneyland. You know, uh, they got the chance to cherry pick, whatever they wanted from Disneyland and from Magic Kingdom, you know, to have the best of both worlds out there. So um, all of the statues uh, were removed and uh, duplicated, and then they realized the sculptures are, are pretty fragile, even though they're made out of marble and they're out there and they're exposed to the heat and the weather and, and, and all of that. So they made a second um, set which is the, the set that's installed at Disneyland today. And then they warehouse the originals and then Disney being Disney, they forgot they had them <laughs> <laughs> while they were looking around for something else. They found these and unfortunately knocked over the snow white figure. So, um, uh, she was damaged. She's since been repaired, but, uh, the original figures are now housed safely at Walt Disney, uh, Imagineering in California, mm-hmm. and if you take the adventures by uh, uh, Disney tour, you can see the real ones, the authentic ones that were there in nineteen, uh, beginning in nineteen sixty one, and um, 
Uh, what do I want to say? Uh, and then when you go to Disneyland, you see the uh, uh, little duplicates. And mm-hmm. when you go over next to that, it's, of course, the uh, uh, Snow White Wishing Well, which which appeared there a year later in 1962 to uh, raise money for a charity, the Variety Clubs uh, International, which helped uh, uh, orphanages and schools and all of that. And, and inside the well, and I always tell people, yes, toss uh, a coin into the well because uh, a wish will come true but it may not necessarily be your wish. And um, uh, from 1962 on, uh, they had, um, uh, what do I want to say? They had a, a sound clip uh, from Snow White uh, singing, you know, I'm wishing, I'm wishing. Uh, and then in 1983, they decided, you know, we've got better digital recording, all of this. We're going to re-record this. Okay. Now, Adriana Casalotti, who is uh, 18 years old when she did the voice of Snow White in, in 37, she's still alive. She's in her, you know, she's in her, her 70s at, at this particular point. But Disney still trots her out for, for certain events, and she still sometimes does the voice of Snow White. But they have other voices, other voice actresses doing Snow White because as you get older, you know, you have less flexibility in in your throat and and, and with your voice, but. You know, as a courtesy, they invite her to come in, Andrea, uh, Adriana Casalotti, to, to record. And uh, after a couple of uh, uh, takes, they can see, you know, she's just not able to hit those, those uh, high notes. And uh, I got a chance to meet Adriana before she passed away. She actually had uh, a little house that had a wishing well uh, in, in front of it and a little dwarf bridge. And she would come out sometimes in costume to talk to children and all that. Um, so anyway, uh, she says, could I just do one more take? And she turns away from the mic and I verified this story because again, Adriana is one of those people who love to tell stories, but I verified it with somebody who was actually there at the sound recording. She turned away and she looked up and she whispered, Mr. Disney, if you're up there, please help me find Snow White's voice. And then she turned back to the microphone for that one final take and she nailed it perfectly. Wow, that's amazing. And so that is the version that you hear coming out of Snow White's well. And of course, we all know, because you're all longtime listeners of this show, so there's no secrets that you don't know. You know (laughs) that the song I'm Wishing begins with the lines, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Where Snow White's talking, you know, to the birds and uh, all of that. Well, those two lines inspired Beatle John Lennon in 1963 to write that hit single, uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret? Listen, do you <laughs> want to know a secret? I won't sing the, the rest of that. Basically, Lennon's mother uh, loved uh, that movie and as a kid would sing him to sleep with songs from uh, Snow White, and that just just stuck there. And... Uh, so everything is connected in it this is. world. It is. Wow. Even the Beatles. Beatles and, and Snow White. And there are secret stories everywhere. Beatles, Snow White, <laughs> Rufus. I mean, they're all connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brer Bear. So that's great. Well, now let's zoom over to the land of future and promise, Tomorrowland. Oh, and the att- oh now we're zooming. Now we're zooming. Now, now, now when I'm tired and worn out. Okay. 
Now it's the, the end of the day. I want to go home. All right, let's zoom over to Tomorrowland. <laughs> well, now the attraction most associated with the future is the monorail. And mm-hmm. one of Bob Gurr's favorite stories is how he kidnapped Vice President Richard Nixon <laughs> during the dedication of the monorail. And that's in yes. your book, Secret Stories of Disneyland. Oh, yeah. And, and again, th- this story is uh, uh, directly from from Bob himself, you know, as Michael pointed out earlier there, um, uh, Bob was in charge of just about everything that moved, you know, at Disneyland, you know, he, he was the one responsible for the, the autopia there. He was responsible for those vehicles on, on, uh, main street and, and other things as well. And he was responsible for the monorail. Now in, uh, 57, uh, he was responsible for the view liner which was the train of the future, which was, was actually <laughs> a modified um, uh, 1954 Oldsmobile <laughs> <laughs> that it was modified to run on railroad tracks. And it, it pulled these uh, uh, cars, these futuristic looking cars that looked like they, you know, were just then pulled right off the track and put on the monorail because they were exactly the same. And the doors opened exactly the same and all of that. And, and so that's one of the things that happens at Disneyland is you build on, on things that were there beforehand. And so the monorail uh, was uh, something that uh, Walt ha- had seen um, on, on one of his uh, vacations over there in the German uh, countryside. And it was an experimental uh, thing. Most uh, monorails are hanging monorails. They hang from a track. Uh, this was what was called a saddleback uh, um, monorail uh, from the Allweg uh, company that was developing this, and Walt liked it, and so made a deal and sent Imagineers over there to look at it and and come over and and do this. But again, it's experimental, so so these things are just not working. You know, uh, sometimes they're stalling out, sometimes they're catching fire. Um, you know, uh, but Walt says, you know, we need it there, you know, for the dedication, uh, June 1959, because we've got Vice President Richard Nixon, who is a, a good friend of Walt's and, and a strong supporter of, uh, of Disney, uh, period. He was there with his family, including his two young daughters. And so there was going to be the big dedication of, of, you know, the monorail, the submarine voyage, the Matterhorn, you know, the three e-ticket attractions and and the big spotlight for nixon was he was dedicating uh the monorail and so it, it it's a hot day and so uh they haven't had tra- time to train anybody so overnight they made a costume a monorail captain costume for gur because gur was going to drive this and so he's in there and it's a, a a hot day and he figures well all i have to do is just slide it into the station, and then after the ribbon is cut, you know, start to move it out, and then that's fine. You know, I can stop it, you know, because they'll, <laughs> they'll have it for the camera, and it'll look like it's working, you know. Uh, so, so that's fine. Well, he slid it into the station, uh, and because it was a hot day, he had to keep uh, uh, the engine running because it had air conditioning uh, in there. And uh, so Nixon was doing a uh, rehearsal, uh, dress rehearsal in the morning, because in those days, 
the newspaper would then, you know, uh, take the photos and all that, so it could go in to the evening edition. Uh, but the official, you know, dedication would take place later that afternoon. Well, they come in for the, the dress rehearsal there, and Nixon is there, and he, he's there with his daughters, and everything's, you know, running smoothly. And as I said, it's hot, uh, so uh, Walt invites them to step in to the cabin of the monorail. Okay, you know. And then Walt looks at uh, Gurr and says, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And Walt and Gurr's eyes just wide. It's like a cartoon. But uh, Bob told me, you never argue with Walt. If Walt tells you to do something, you do it, and then you worry about it later. And he said, you know, I don't know if Walt knew that we had only made one successful lap complete lap ever with the monorail. And he said, I had visions of this stalling out over the submarine lagoon and exploding and Richard Nixon burning to death and screaming out the windows and, and, uh, uh, all of this, but he got in and took off. Now this was a surprise and it was a surprise to everybody, including Nixon's, um, secret service, uh, crew who are left on the platform looking at this speeding off. And there's no way for the because again, it's a monorail track. There's no way for them to catch up to this. There's no, you know, what are they going to do? And, but, oh my gosh, remember, this is before the extension to the, the Disneyland uh, hotel. So it, it's only a short loop and it starts to come back in. And so the secret service, you know, are getting ready to jump in to the open windows, because I I don't know if people remember, in the beginning, the monorail just had open windows. They only had enclosed windows uh, when they came to Walt Disney World because of the uh, heat and humidity, so you needed air conditioning, you needed protection from the rain, all of that. So So they're getting ready, they're crouching, they're getting ready to jump, and as they start to pull in, Nixon's two girls go go start yelling, Go again, go again <laughs> So Gurr speeds up and he says the Secret Service are running and they're trying to jump onto the monorail and, and, and all of this and he says Nixon's just laughing and laughing and they come back around and, and they come in and so the Secret Service are jumping in the windows as Nixon and his family are exiting the captain's cabin and, you know, going down. And then Bob told me that two weeks later, he got a, uh, a telegram, uh, from the Olweg, uh, consultant in Germany that they should, uh, immediately stop construction on the monorail because their tests have shown them that it's, uh, completely dangerous and, uh, could blow up. <laughs> and, and by that time, the monorail had been running for two weeks at Disneyland. So um, Bob invites the consultant to come down, and the guy sits on the monorail with his uh, vibration recording device. And after several you know, uh, hours of riding around and there's no discrepancy, you know, the guy finally has to admit that Disney did something that, that made this uh, actually uh, work, you know? But it shouldn't. So it's like a hummingbird, you know, that that, uh, it flies. But, you know, scientifically, 
there's no possible way that should happen. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a great story. Now, you and, know, and there's more great stories, by the way, boys and girls, when you buy <laughs> secret stories of Disneyland at Amazon.com from Jim Corcus. And make sure you look for Jim Corcus because there's dozens of books that have secret stories at Disneyland. There so. are. There are when you, when you go on the Amazon. Now, mm-hmm. you know, right now, uh, you know, Disney has been, you know, purchasing up other properties such as, you know, Marvel, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, what? The, well, the, the Muppets, everything, you know? Muppets, yeah. What some of our listeners might be really fascinated by is that um, at one time, Doc, you know, our Doctor Who fans might find it fascinating to know that there were once plans for the good doctor to pay a visit to Tomorrowland. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, uh, I'm a casual Doctor Who fan, and I and I especially like the, uh, you know, the the new revived uh, uh, versions there. You know, the Tenth Doctor and the Eleventh Doctor, all that. Um, but again, I'm just a casual Doctor Who fan. But uh, as a kid, uh, I would watch Doctor Who on PBS, and the Doctor Who that I first saw. Um, was uh, a Tom Baker, the fourth doctor. And um, while I was researching the book, I found out that there was a Doctor Who uh, connection, that the uh, uh, producer, uh, Sidney Newman, who created uh, Doctor Who, uh, was actually offered an animator's job at the Disney Studios in 1938, he had applied and he had been accepted, but because he was a Canadian, he couldn't get, you know, the proper visa clearance to come down or else he would have been a Disney animator. We maybe he never had, you know, uh, Doctor Who. Now, in 1974, there was a proposal for the Doctor Who serials to take place at uh, Disneyland because the premise, of course, is there's nothing so alien as Disneyland, so that would be the perfect place for an alien to hide. But uh, unfortunately, uh, anybody who knows the history of Doctor Who and knows BBC at that time, you know, the money just did not exist. And uh, when Tom Baker uh, in uh, 75 was brought on as the fourth Doctor, uh, you know, in, in England they didn't have the weekly Disney TV show that a lot of us grew up with. Uh, but they had a special um, uh, a Christmas uh, edition called Disney Time, where they would have a, a, a live-action host, and they would have clips from Disney animation and Disney live-action, and, of course, primarily promoting what's the new film that's coming out. And in, August, and in 1975, they had uh, Tom Baker uh, as the host in his costume as uh, Doctor Who, so introducing himself as the new regeneration of Doctor Who doing that. Now, uh, by the late 1980s, uh, Michael Eisner was looking for franchises uh, to purchase, which is, which is very unusual because uh, Eisner's uh, modus operandi was, uh, let's see what other people are doing, and then Disney is going to do it, but do it better. You know, uh, Church Street Station has all these theme nightclubs and they're raking in cash and people are leaving Disney property to go there. We're going to build Pleasure Island with themed nightclubs. Mm-hmm. Oh, people are going to Bush Gardens. 
uh, to ride uh, roller coasters and see live animals and go on a safari, we're going to build Disney Animal Kingdom. But in the 1980s, he was looking at everything, and he was looking at franchises, and he was looking uh, because this was a lull period of, of Doctor Who, you know, no new uh, episodes were being made. He was looking uh, to buy the rights to Doctor Who, and primarily its video library, because then could release it uh, through the Disney uh, videos that, that were getting out there. And so uh, Imagineers drew up uh, some uh, preliminary plans. So one of the things that you missed out on having as an attraction at Disneyland is uh, you would have gone into the TARDIS. And for those of you who are not Doctor Who fans, that is a blue police box, which is sort of the time travel device of Doctor Who. And it's much larger on the inside than it is on the outside. And so you would go into the TARDIS, and that would go into this huge warehouse. And so um, there's still debate about whether there would be a dark ride involved or whether there's a show or, or uh, something like that. But again, that all stopped once, um, because uh, Eisner was always looking for backups, too. Uh, once uh, they partnered with George Lucas, Doctor Who was uh, uh, completely uh, forgotten. But the mm -hmm. BBC didn't forget it, because in 1987, the seventh uh, uh, Doctor, Sylvester uh, McCoy, uh, in a, in a, in a three-episode uh, serial, he and a bunch of aliens are going to spend a week at 1959 Disneyland. However, their tour bus, their outer space tour bus there, get hits by an orbiting satellite, and they end up in a holiday camp in uh, uh, South Wales, which was probably more affordable. So Doctor Who keeps trying to get to Disneyland, and uh, just never seems to, to make it. Apparently, he has no interest in Walt Disney World, but uh, just can't make it to, to Disneyland. And, but for those of you who are big uh, Doctor Who fans, um, uh, Disneyland does host uh, an unofficial uh, day. You know, just like there's uh, Dapper Day and, uh, and Bats Day and all that, there's a uh, Galley Day, which is a reference to the Doctor's home planet of uh, Gallifrey, and uh, these started in uh, 2014, and there have been uh, five of those events. So if you're a Doctor Who fan and you're a Disneyland fan, you know, go, go Google uh, uh, Galley Day, G-A-L-L-I-D-A-Y, and uh, you'll find when you'll have the next opportunity to, to go there and, you know, be the doctor or be the doctor's companion or... Hmm. Or, or be the TARDIS. You know, I, I've actually uh, been a guest speaker at some Doctor Who uh, uh, conventions. And uh, that's odd because I'm a casual fan, right? I'm, I'm brought in as alternative entertainment because what they found was that uh, sometimes only one person of the couple is really passionate about Doctor Who. You know, maybe the husband is passionate and, and the wife just barely tolerates it or, or vice versa. And so they have alternative entertainment where I go and I talk about uh, Disney and Disney's version of the future and, and things like that while uh, somebody is off spending the mortgage money, uh, you know, <laughs> buying a Dalek or a sonic screwdriver or something like that. Oh, that's funny. 
Yeah, so, and, 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 but, and I love it, but, but, but again, I've, I've seen people in, in some of the most outrageous uh, uh, costumes, you know, whatsoever. Generally, they're, they're dressed up as the doctor, sometimes as a companion, but as I said, I've seen people dressed up uh, as Daleks I've, uh, and different versions of Daleks, of course, and, and I, I've seen a couple of people actually dressed up as the TARDIS, hmm. you know. And and I'm sitting there trying to sell books at my table, and you have this big blue TARDIS, you know, talking to you, and you don't know where to look <laughs> or where the money's coming from for the book. But that's all right. Well, now there's there's one story um, that I want to get from across the Esplanade at Disney California Adventure because this is probably a question we get a lot from uh, on the Disneyland show, and really? you know. Disney fans know, especially from the Walt Disney World fans, Disney fans know the comedian Don Knotts primarily Mm -hmm. through the Andy Griffith show and his Disney films such as The Apple Dumpling Gang and Hot Lead and Cold Feet. What we get a lot of questions about, though, is that there there are homages to Don Knotts in the 1989 film The Little Mermaid and right, in right. Disney uh, California uh, yes. Adventures when, when they're Little doing uh, the un- Under the Sea. Uh, look at that last uh, free scene, you know, where all of the uh, fish and sea creatures are pointing to Ariel, and Ariel's already gone. Uh, look mm-hmm. in the upper right hand uh, corner, and there you will see Mister Limpet. And mm-hmm. you can see the glasses, and you can see the famous uh, uh, Don Knotts uh, uh, lips. And, and, and what Michael is referring to is, uh, in my book, Secret Stories of Disneyland, I have an entire section uh, called Beyond the Berm, so that I could talk about a, a couple of the stories at uh, uh, Disney California Adventure, like the Storyteller statue there, and the Citizens of Buena Vista Street, and... Um, the Grand Californian. Uh, but for Mr. Limpet, the incredible Mr. Limpet, believe it or not, was recently going to be remade into a feature film mm-hmm. with uh, Jim Carrey. As I'm Mr. so Limpet. glad they did not do that. And, and they did a lot of uh, CGI um, uh, tests of, of what the, the fish would look like, you know, with Jim Carrey's face and, and all of that. And yes, I'm glad they, they didn't do that. Uh, in 1964, Warner Brothers released a film called The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Uh, Don Knotts was really popular on the uh, Andy Griffith show. And, uh, you know, after this would really take off with one of my favorite films, The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some others. And basically, uh, Limpet is, uh, takes place in, in 1941. And Henry Limpet is Don Knotts, who, who is playing his, his nervous, you know, wimpy character. And he wants to get into the war, but uh, again, he's classified as 4F, uh, not going to be doing that. And he's depressed. He goes to Coney Island. He falls into the water, and he transforms into a fish. Because earlier, uh, he has a little aquarium, and he's looking at the fish, and he thinks, you know, what a wonderful life that is, so peaceful and People won't pick on you and, and things like this. Now, remember, this is uh, uh, 64, so this is before computer animation. So all of the animation is hand-drawn. We're talking 24 frames a second, and it's hand-colored uh, ink and paint. And this is the very last um, uh, animated film 
uh, done by Warner Brothers Animation. Right after this film, it disbands and it, it sort of outsources uh, animation for the TV specials and any new sorts, shorts and all that to, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, people who they let go, like Frizz Freeling and, and, and Chuck Jones. So anyway, uh, you've got this wonderful, you know, uh, animation, and the animation is being done by Bill Teitler. Now, Bill Teitler was a, a former Disney animator. He's, he's the one who did the animation on Chernabog in, in Fantasia and Stromboli in Pinocchio. And he even did the little baby Dumbo in, in Dumbo because Walt was, was so attuned to people, he realized that uh, Bill, who, who does all these huge, terrible, you know, menacing villains, um, he had just had a, uh, uh, a little baby boy born the previous year. So he knew that when Teitler went home, he'd be spending all of his time with this little two-year-old boy. And in fact, one time he came home and his wife was uh, uh, bathing his son in the sink, and that gave him the idea for the scene that we see in Dumbo of Dumbo's mother bathing him in the tub. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, Titler's doing this animation. Unfortunately, during the production, he gets uh, uh, sick, and it goes over to uh, uh, Bill McKimson, among other than Leghorn, among other than Leghorn, among other things. And and again, so wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, thing. And then again, animators are just really pranksters. You know, they love jokes, and 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 I'm sure listeners can can write in with with uh, uh, all sorts of examples of how, uh, you know, in, in, in Aladdin, uh, the genie pulls out, you know, these toys, and, you know, and, and one of them is, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the leader from uh, Aladdin, and, um, you know, all, all these other things. And, and like in Pixar, you know, you're seeing all of these little... Uh, 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 homages and also references to upcoming uh, Pixar films. And so uh, in uh, a Little Mermaid in Under the Sea, they put in Mr. Limpet because, you know, they love the animation. You know, the character is so memorable. It's of a certain generation. Uh, you can buy it on DVD, by the way. And um, uh, he he's up there. And so when they do uh, Disney's California Adventure, they decide to, to stick him in there as well. But again, Disney doesn't own the character. So, you know, there, there's a gray area in terms of parody and homage and fair use and, and all of that. So they stink, uh, stink. They stick uh, Limpet in there, but um, basically they hide him behind a clamshell. They do not put a light on mm-hmm. on the character there's seaweed around there and across from him on the other side of the track you know uh flounders dancing you know with the carmen miranda fish so that's where you would be looking you know but nowadays thanks to the internet everybody knows all these things you know yeah. you have to and, look behind the, yes. the sh- clamshell you're sitting in yeah, and, to and, see him. and 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 again you know of course disney's not going to say this is mr limpet and of course, uh, when the attraction uh, was built out here, no, there's no Mr. Limpet in the attraction out here at Walt Disney World. You mm-hmm. know, so now they can say, "Oh no, that was just a mistake there. That was just, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's Mr. Limpet. And and it's still a fun film uh, uh, to watch. And a lot of people don't realize that once upon a time, films actually ran like 90 minutes, not three hours. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it might even be on YouTube. You might even track it. everything in their mother is on YouTube. So you can, Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. Actually, actually, just posted on YouTube. I didn't post this. Somebody else did. They found it. Uh, I've been on a couple of game shows. I was on um, a gong show, dating game, uh, family feud, uh, camouflage, where I won a red Cadillac. Um, mm. And and again, I was, uh, of course, uh, after I, I was a, a union member, so I was getting paid union scale. So it didn't make any difference to me whether I won or not. I, I went on and I did that. I got paid scale, which was a couple of hundred bucks. And, you know, I could pay my rent, pay my utilities, things like that. (laughs) Well, there was one game show I did the pilot for where I won thousands of dollars, but I didn't get thousands of dollars because it was a pilot. So they wouldn't give me the thousand of dollars unless the pilot sold. And it was called origins and it was filmed at, um, filmation studio. Filmation uh, Studio did an awful lot of Saturday morning uh, animation. uh, uh, Fat Albert, uh, Mm -hmm. Flash Gordon, uh, uh, Brave Star, uh, things like that. And they were trying to break into live action. So they did this live action game show called Origins, where you had to identify the um, origin of a word or a phrase. And I won because I knew the origin of Ham Actor. Because, again, I have a background as a performer, and I love not just Disney history, but theater history. And so, uh, around you know, in the 1800s, they didn't have pancake makeup. Max Factor is the one who created pancake makeup. They had um, grease paint, you know, which was, uh, if anybody's ever put it on, and I have, I've used it in productions, you know, it goes on wet and it stays wet, and been trying to get it off it, it's that oil base so you can't use soap and water you know to get it off so um in the days of the melodramas actors to get this off would use um uh ham fat or ham rind or bacon grease and that would get off the makeup and then they would go into a saloon and they'd be smelling you know like a pig and of course these were melodrama actors so you know, they're used to grand gestures, you know, so that uh, because lighting was so bad, you were in limelight, which is, which is very dull. So you have to take a huge pose so it can be seen in the back row. And, you know, you have this uh, exaggerated way of doing this. And so the term ham actor would ap- apply to those actors and then carried over into the 20th century where uh, an actor who was overacting, you know, taking broad poses or exaggerated things, he was a ham actor. So I knew that, and uh, I won the money. Uh, (laughs) Now, the reason I bring that up is just about three weeks ago, somebody found that pilot. And Bob Eubanks was a whole, and they posted it on YouTube. And and I look at it. I'll be Googling it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and I look at it and I cry and I'm not crying because of the money because I still got paid scale, you know, for for doing the show I'm, I, and I was fine. I cry because I'm so thin. <laughs> I've got so much hair and it's dark, you know. And That's and fine. and 
and, and, and if you squint and, and tip your head sideways, I almost look cute. <laughs> and it's like, where did that boy go? Where did, you know? And, and, at, and at the time, I was a junior high school teacher. And it was my first year as a junior high school teacher. So, <laughs> well, well, now the stories Jim has shared with us are only a few of the stories from his book, um, Secret Stories of Disneyland Trivia. And in fact, I promised Michael one story that's not in the book. So, I'm, okay. so you brought up Don Knotts. Apparently, that's a favorite mm-hmm. of yours. <laughs> At Disneyland, uh, you, you know, again, we talked about the fact that people confuse Disneyland and Walt Disney World. All uh-huh. the time, and, and sometimes there's variations in the attractions and things like that. In the queue line for Disneyland's Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, there's a vein of gold ore. Okay? And so mm-hmm. I always assumed, well, yeah, they did a nice job. You know, you get gold paint and, you know, you, you, you speckle things here and, you know, that's it. It's real gold ore. And... It's real gold ore from Rosamond, California. Now, what does that mean to anybody? Rosamond, California is where several scenes were shot for the Apple Dumpling Gang. Oh, okay. Yes. See, and and that's the reaction I want from people when they read the book is the little light goes on over their head and they go, oh, and then I want you to go out and share those stories with, with other people. And if you have some great untold stories about uh, Disneyland, uh, please put them in the comments uh, section there. If I, if I use them in a sequel, I will, I will credit you. Um, if it is a correct story. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and um, uh, if it's an incorrect story, I'll pretend I never read it. And uh, remember, if, you, if you'd like a, a, a sequel... You've got to vote with your wallet. You've got to buy the book because that's, that's what convinces my publisher to say, hey, let, let's do another one. And as I said, I've done two volumes of Secret Stories of Walt Disney World. I'm finishing up a uh, third volume. I'm not going to be foolish enough to say when it comes out because these always take longer than, than intended. But I am finishing up a, uh, a third volume, and that third volume will include things like turkey legs and dole whip and uh uh for those of you who are uh, famished by this particular point in in the podcast <laughs> um and uh, i would love to write a, a a second book but again it's important to get those stories out there it's important to enjoy yourself and remember when you go to disneyland don't make it an appointment vacation i see this out at Walt Disney World all the time. People are, are rushing to get there for their fast pass times or their, their reservation for the restaurant or whatever. And, it, you know, take a few moments, even though it may seem odd to the rest of the people in your group, take a few moments to just look around. Enjoy the detail. You know, enjoy the, 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 the color. The, all of these are conscious choices. This is what makes Disneyland different than any other entertainment venue, whether it's it's Universal, who has done some very, very fine work, especially out here. Um, you know, but there's still no place like Disneyland. And so whether you're tracking down Dr. Benjamin Stein on Main Street 
or uh, uh, looking at Lafitte's uh, anchor or the petrified uh, uh, stump that's 10 feet tall and seven and a half feet wide in diameter. Uh, enjoy yourself. Take some Absolutely. photos. Absolutely. Right. Just stop and smell the churros. <laughs> <laughs> and now you know where they came from. That's right. Absolutely. And so you can learn about these stories in more detail and even more by getting a copy of Jim's Secret Stories of Disneyland, Trivia Notes, Quotes, and Anecdotes at either of our links that we'll have in our show notes to at Amazon.com or, or at ThemeParkPress.com. You can also check out the other books that Jim has written. Um, Jim, thank you for joining us on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition. Michael, Tom, it, it, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you when you come out here. Uh, to the wilds of uh, uh, Florida, where we have love bugs and alligators and uh, <laughs> uh, humidity, but we also have Walt Disney World. So that's um, right. Another so magical. Looking place. forward to that, and and please uh, have me back uh, at any time. Uh, l- let me know what the reaction are fr- from the listeners, and for those of you who are listening, thank you for being patient to to let me vent off with all of this hot air. But just like you, I get very excited about Disneyland and Disney, and I just want to share that with with others, and I especially want to share it with you because I know you are the folks who really care about this. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you, Jim. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Walt Disney. 